Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you are joining us. We believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will take one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our own lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. This season, we're going through the book of Romans, and today's episode is chapter 10, The Righteousness Comes Through Christ. Okay, so a little bit about my studying is I kind of take a different approach to each chapter depending on just how the chapter flows. And on this one, I actually normally teach from written notes because y'all have seen a picture of it or some of y'all have. I will summarize a section of scripture in my own words and sometimes writing it out verbatim if I feel like there's a lot to unpack in that particular verse. But then I come and put my own thoughts and commentary and other things in different color pens. Not that there is this 100% die hard because I'm kind of a fly by the seat of my pants kind of girl. So if I pick up a black pen that day and the next day, can't find it. And so it's another pin like that doesn't stress me out. But this chapter, I ended up having to type it out and organize it a little bit more because I just had to wrap my mind around a couple of things that they were saying. I needed to be more organized than I usually am. But one of the things that I got, I got really excited. I'm just going to say that today as I was praying and going over my notes, like there was something that just started stirring and welling up in me. And I really believe that God is doing something here. And so I am excited. Again, I'm not one like a lot of the best speakers that you're going to hear are people who go over their notes over and over and over and over again to where they basically memorize them. And I, while I admire that and I think, wow, I wish I could talk like that, that is just not how I feel led by the Holy Spirit to operate. And sometimes, I mean, I have my notes, I, I go over them, I'm familiar with them, but I just feel like he can move more freely through me if I don't have something so worked up and memorized. So we're just going to let him flow this morning. So bear with me. But we start off in this chapter and Paul from the get-go in verse one is saying, the longing of my heart and prayer to God is for these people of Israel to be saved. So he is saying it's the longing of his heart. I mean, he really is in agony that his people, and you know, I think it hits close to home because he was one of them. You know, he's not somebody who can stand up and shake his head and go, how can you not see? I don't even understand. He does understand. He was one of them. He was the Pharisee among Pharisees for such a long time. And it was his goal in life to put a stop to this Christian movement because it was anti-establishment, which he believed the establishment was the way to God. So he has this burning passion that his people will also come to know Christ. And he says, it's his prayer. Well, last chapter, we talked about those who God call. And specifically, Paul mentions Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were called. Well, how does God call? In our day and age, it is through preaching the gospel, sharing your testimony, serving others in the name of Jesus, and through prayer. This is God's program. And Paul was praying. He was doing his part for praying for the lost. And, you know, some people could come in and argue, well, God knows in the end who's going to be saved and not saved. And I love this quote that I came across that C.S. Lewis, um, a, a more 
mid-century, I guess, theologian. I mean, he wasn't a first century theologian. I don't know what you call that, but, um, you know, it's older than us, but um, not that much further removed from us. C.S. Lewis posed a response to someone questioning this very thing, that if prayer is necessary when things have already been decided. Um, For example, you know, I think um, of, uh, to put it practically, this is how I was when I was a young person. I would prepare for a test and then I would take it and I would still pray that the outcome was good. And I'll explain a little bit more about that why. Like the outcome was already determined. And the question is, should I pray when that outcome has already been decided? And this was C.S. Lewis's response. Shocking as it may sound, I conclude that we can at noon become part causes of an event that already occurred at 10 o'clock. And this is, I told my husband, oh, I'm so tracking with him. This is how my thought. Now, remember, he says this is what he concludes. This is his understanding. But I feel like I can kind of get in his mind on this. When I took a test, I prepared for it. Like, I didn't just really ever go ask God for favors and expect him to move if I didn't do my part. But if I prepared for something, I still prayed for it after because the way I thought was, well, God lives outside of space and time. So my prayers go up to him, which is outside of space and time. So he knows my prayers, even if I'm praying after the fact. Who knows? But I think that that is what C.S. Lewis is saying. Like, Paul's still going to be praying because we believe that prayer is effective, even if the timing of it is in a weird place. So what we can learn from Paul is prayer, prayer, prayer can move and change. He goes on to say, I know that I know what zeal they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. I can tell you this. The Jews take their relationship with God seriously. They have a reverence and honor for his holiness. They are never casual with him. And that can be respected. And that is something that really needs to be looked at and applied to our life. But then there's a warning. Zeal without knowledge will lead you astray. I have seen this with young Christians. They are so passionate when they come. They've had an experience. Maybe they felt God's presence and they have this zeal. But if you don't have the knowledge, it can lead you astray. But on the flip side, it can knowledge does not save. Knowledge does not save. So we do have to have the knowledge, but it does not save. Um, This zeal was something that really emerged amongst Second Temple Judaism. When you hear this term, Second Temple Judaism, all that means is after the exiles with the, the Assyrian exiles, the Babylonian exiles, remember Nehemiah was allowed to come back and rebuild the temple that King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed. So they built a second temple. So this is the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament up through Jesus's day, any any time that happened when there was a second temple, that second temple Judaism. So during this time in between the Testaments, there was this zeal that emerged and it became a commendable virtue among the Jews. And it all kind of started with this mathematical Mathetaeus, uh, this leader of the resistance of the Maccabean revolt. For those of you that studied Daniel with us, we learned a little bit about this. There, um, the the um, Roman Empire um, was ruling the world, and one of the emperors was just wrecking havoc and doing blasphemous things in the um, 
the city of Jerusalem and desecrated the temple. And this group of um, men from a priestly line rose up and they fought against the empire and they actually won. So this leader of this resistance, Mathetaeus, I think is how you say his name, forgive me if it's not, he had a mantra and he said, let everyone who is zealous for the law and support the covenant come out with me. And he really knew how to capture the heart of the Israelites and to create this zeal and this passion. And it was so strong that they actually did overthrow um, the empire. And for a while, they gained control of their temple again, and they got to begin performing all the rituals that they were no longer allowed to ref- to um, perform. Also during this time, the zealot party was formed. You know, we hear one of the disciples, Simon was a zealot. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Essenes. You also had the zealots. They were known to be more militant. Um, you know, in fact, when Jesus rises, rides in on the pony and you know that there's a crowd of people and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. We sing it as a lovely, beautiful song. This was a war cry of the zealots. It was Hoshana, and it was a chant, a war cry. It was like, think of the the movie 300. This is what was happening because they believed that this Messiah was riding in and he was going to be a militant figure that helped them overthrow the Roman Empire. They would carry something called the Sakari knife, and they would go through the crowds in Israel, and they would just puncture the the and gut the people that they felt were siding with the Romans, like tax collectors or anyone that wasn't living with this zeal that they had, they would murder. And so this zeal was something that really arose. And he said that, you know, these Israelites had zeal for God, but it was misdirected. They missed the whole point. And in verse three, it says, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way, getting right with God by keeping the law. Basically, people need the right information about the gospel. This really hit me on the practical side of why we're studying Romans. We need to understand for ourselves what Christ accomplished on the cross so that we as God's mouthpiece can share properly. But again, something we have to remember is that right information doesn't save, but God calls people and he softens their heart through the message of the gospel rightly uh, portrayed. And people do end up having to decide on their own if this information is something that they want to radically submit to. But what happened was the Israelites said, oh, no, 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 no. We don't accept this way of getting right through God through Jesus. The way to get right through God is through our own work. So they created their own way of getting right with God, and they would not really be even open to the idea that maybe their way was a misunderstanding, misguided misdirected way. In verse four, it says, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. This is such good news. Some translators use the word end for this, though for Christ ended the law. The Greek word is telos, T-E-L-O-S. And I believe that this is a wrong translation because it gives the sense that Christ terminated the law. He's the end of the law. But remember, Christ in Matthew 5, 17 says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. 
This was a continuation of God's plan. Also in Hebrews, um, the author reminds us that God said, I will put my Torah on their hearts and write it on their minds. He's not abolishing it. He's actually transferring it to something that is in the natural and making it something now supernatural. It's written on our hearts and it's in our minds. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can walk in this. We can be clothed in Christ through our trust in him. God's Torah, which is another word, it, we say law, it's translated law, but it's not like when we think of law, we think of the law of the land and you have to obey it or if you break it, you go to jail. The, the word is rightly tr- um, translated instructions. This is God's instructions on how to live. And when we look at it like that, like, oh, well, you're the creator of the universe and you're the creator of people. So you gave us an instruction manual on how to do this thing. And so why would God abolish his instructions? No, he didn't abolish his instructions. His instructions are still there because it's the right way to live. However, before Christ, in order to have an eternal right standing with God, you had to obey it to the letter with not one mistake or else you would be condemned to hell because we have sin. That sin thing just came in and ruined everything. But God's, his intent was never, never, never for us to follow it to the letter of the law. If you look back in the Old Testament, it was always, there was always going to be a sacrifice made. And through that sacrifice, we were made in right standing with God. So God's Torah, his instructions are eternal. And the only way to him is through righteousness. However, again, I'm repeating myself, we could never follow these laws, these instructions perfectly. But God's plan factored this in from the beginning. It's the Torah plus the power of the Holy Spirit that comes through the blood of Jesus that indwells in us, that enables us to clothe ourselves in Christ's righteousness. We actually wear his righteousness. The Torah always pointed to trust in the Messiah. From the beginning, it pointed to trust in the Messiah. It never said, you have to obey this in your own actions. It never said that. So moving on forward, Paul quotes from the Torah. And when we say the Torah, This is the first five books of the Bible. It was what God gave Moses on Sinai. It was the instructions in which man was to live by. So Paul's going to quote from the Torah, from Moses' books, to prove that the righteousness grounded in the Torah was none other than the righteousness found in the trust through our trust in Christ. He points out that their mind, he points out that their mind set of following the law is flawed because you would have to obey it completely and perfectly for their way to work. And it was impossible. The one thing they failed to see is that God gave Moses the Torah on the Holy Feast of Pentecost. And he also gave the Holy Spirit on the Holy Day of Pentecost because they work together. It was part of a puzzle piece that needed to be put together to work perfectly. He also uses verses that told them, let me see, let me, I'm sorry, let me, um, I had to switch pages in my notes. Okay. Okay. He also uses verses to them that would explain that the only way to obey some of these laws is through trust. For example, um, let's look at the, the, the most important two, uh, two commandments. You know, there was a man that came to Jesus while he walked the earth and said, hey, what's the, what's the most important thing to, to, to follow? And he says to love God 
And the second one like it is to love your neighbor as yourself. So he said that they're pretty much one and the same. You can't put one above the other. You are to love God, but you are supposed to also love other people. Well, there's no way to do either one of those unless you have trust in what God says. You can't love God without trusting him. And you can't love your neighbor without trusting that God's way is best because man, your flesh is gonna rise up every time. But when we trust God, we are able to tell our flesh to settle down and we can walk out God's love in us. Okay, so verse nine says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is part of what was entitled when I was growing up as the Romans Road. There was a group of five or six different verses sprinkled throughout Romans that that we were encouraged to memorize because it could lead someone to salvation. And this is the culmination of that, saying if you declare openly that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This word openly declare is the word O-M-O-L-O-G-E-I-N. That's the Greek word. And it literally translates to say the same thing. It's something that you physically do. You ha- it's, it's the words that come out of your mouth, but it has to say the same thing as what is going on in your heart. This word believe is tricky because in our translation, we use the word believe too softly. But their word for believe means t- to have trust. And then there's action that is a part of this word. See, our word believe is casual. For example, I believe that Satan exists. But I don't put trust in him, nor do I actively serve him and submit to his ways. And so that's not the belief that they're talking about. The belief that they're talking about is to actively serve and to put your trust in somebody. So your heart has to to have these desires and there needs to be action to prove that your heart has these desires. But then what you openly declare has to say the same thing that your heart says. So it's... um. Hang on a second. So it's to submit and actively walk out his ways. Not perfectly, because that's never an expectation. You won't do it. But it is to be done with reverence and the intent to obey him and to have a joyful heart doing this. Then your words need to say the same thing that is coming from your heart. And over time, it will. Meaning, a couple of things. One, if there's sanctification involved, then maybe your mouth at the beginning doesn't say it, but over time you are transforming. So out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But also if you're faking it, over time you will be exposed. Over time, if you're saying things that just are contrary to God's word, and I mean, that could be, I'm not saying to go out and preach um, something that's anti-gospel, I mean gossip and, and having hatred and saying, you know, I don't like that person and this is what I want to do to them. That is anti-gospel. And so your mouth will reveal what is in your heart over time. You can't just fake this. Or um, you can believe you are following, well, that's what I was saying. You can believe that you're following God. Maybe you, you believe that in your heart, but your mouth will say otherwise. So what we need to do is take inventory of our own lives and say, hey, is there fruit? Is there evidence that I have a heart that believes? 
And if you find yourself in a place that, ooh, this doesn't really match up, I, I can't really find any fruit, the good news, you repent. You just say, God, you confess it. God, wow, I thought I believed and it doesn't appear that there's any fruit, but God cultivated me a heart that does believe and produce fruit and forgive me for not fully submitting to you. And God is going to come in. You gave him permission. He'll come in and start work in your heart. So this word, you will be saved. Let's see. I don't think, did I read? I didn't read verse 10. For it is with believing in your heart that you were made right with God and openly declaring your faith that you will be saved. So this will be saved. What I love about it, it is not something you have to achieve. It's immediately received by trusting the gospel, which is the name that Jesus, well, we name that Jesus is Lord. We name him. He is Lord and we choose to submit to him. Even though it's not going to look perfect at first, we're going to start changing our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll start looking like him. We'll start being transformed into his image. But we also have to believe in his resurrection because there's no power to save us without the resurrection. Paul then, for the next three verses, turns his attention to the Gentiles. I love these three verses. I'm going to read them as a whole. And it says, as the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he is explaining to the Jews, but then hopefully with Gentile ears listening, that Anyone is available to receive this gift. Then he turns back to the Jews. And here Paul uses a common rabbinic method of introducing imaginary opponent and that imaginary opponent making objections to what he's saying. So he goes in to to ask some questions. He says, but how can they call on him to save unless they believe in him. Then how can they believe in him unless they've heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless somebody tells them? And how Will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring the good news. Let me put this in today's language. Basically, it's as if this opponent saying, it's not our fault. No one, it's not our fault. No one was ever sent to tell us. We would have gladly accepted God's messenger had one been sent. They're blaming God. This is as old as time. But Paul comes back quick. And he explains to them, God did send messengers and y'all had ample opportunity to hear God's plan. Paul then shows them examples of the prophets using Deuteronomy, Hosea, and Psalms. And he explains to them, he just shows them a teeny tiny snippet of how God used the prophets to proclaim all of this. While I was reading and and, and preparing for this, this is all that I kept hearing this morning. It's found in Revelation 19.10, and it's when an angel of the Lord says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Paul is going back to the prophets, and he is showing how they all pointed to Jesus. What did the angel mean? In Revelation, well, we have to ask, what is prophecy? Prophecy is nothing more or less than the communication from God to mankind. A lot of times we picture it as, oh, it's somebody who knows the future. Well, sometimes God reveals future things through prophets, but that's not what prophecy is. Prophecy is just the message that God has to a people. It's 
and prophets are prophets. If somebody's a prophet, they're the mouthpiece of God. And it's usually to bring a warning. Hey, God's wanting us to wake up. Hey, wake up and hear the truth. And Jesus was the substance of all prophecy. All true prophecy should bear witness to Jesus as him being the only way. So this, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that is what Paul was showing. Paul closes with this, and it's quoting prophecy again from Isaiah. And later, Isaiah spoke boldly for God saying, I was found by people who were not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. But regarding Israel, God said, all day long, I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. The Jews heard, yet didn't believe. And the Gentiles heard and embraced it. And Paul is showing this was predicted even by the prophets long ago. Friends, we are bought with the blood of Jesus, which means we are standing in a court, or we were, we were standing in a court guilty, but the blood of Jesus paid for our debt and now we are free. We are now children of God and co-heirs with Christ. Having the Holy Spirit now, we have a supernatural power within us and we are called to share the good news of salvation with others. The good news for us is that there doesn't have to be any pressure to perform or to get this perfectly right. We share our knowledge of truth, which is found in the word. And that's why it's so important for us to be in the word and do this. Even though Romans might seem difficult and monotonous, because isn't he saying the same thing over and over again? And it's to Jews who don't believe. What do I have in common with this? We are gaining more knowledge of the truth of what happened at Calvary. So we share our knowledge of that truth and our testimony of how Jesus transformed our heart heart and minds. It's at that point that power is then released from us to operate on the hearer's heart. It's his job to soften it. So we can butcher it. We can sound like a fool. We can stumble over our words. But when truth is released, there is supernatural power that goes in and works on the hearts of the people release it to. So I encourage you today, stick with this. God is doing something in us. And when we least expect it, it is going to come out of us because what you put in comes out. And we are putting this in. And even if it's confusing for us for a while, good, good thing that Paul's saying it over and over again so we can get it right in our minds. And what we put in will come out. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, it will change other lives. We're going to continue on. So next week, we will discuss chapter 11. But then when we're heading into the Thanksgiving week, we will hit pause. We are not going to do a lesson during Thanksgiving, but I do encourage you to still tune in into the podcast because I will be visiting with Newly about a very timely message that he has on his heart for this thankful Thanksgiving season. So I'll see you next week. Keep reading and happy reading.